We this morning are in Romans chapter 3, continuing on in our sermon series, The Gospel of God. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. We have been spending a lot of weeks talking about what Paul is talking about, the resistance in the heart of man to want to admit sin. It runs really deep in us. There's a part of us that will admit a bit of that, but there's also a part of us that really fights it. You're probably not like me, but it is a whole lot easier for me to admit my wrong if I see it first. If I can put it in my terms, if I can couch it the way I want to couch it, sometimes we're willing to venture out and say, oh, yes, I, I fell short there. But it's a different thing. It is a different thing when, when all your defenses are down and you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar and you can't put your own terms around it. That's when we really see our hearts, don't we? When we are laid bare. And we can't, we can't somehow couch it the way we want to couch it. Or say it the way we want to say it. Or put our spin on it. And we are just laid open and vulnerable. That's really what Paul is driving at in these chapters that we've been in. Seeing our sin that way, seeing our sin in such a way that we just have nothing to say. We're caught, and we know it, and we're desperate, desperate to look outside of ourselves for covering. And that's what the gospel is about. That's what the gospel and the glory of the gospel is. The most merciful thing God can do is get you with your hand in the cookie jar cold and reveal your heart to you and show you that there is no place else to go. There's no way to paint a good picture of it but to run to Christ and and receive the righteousness that he provides. That's what Romans is about, about a righteousness that comes from God that is by faith. And Paul talked to the Gentiles about it and he said, you're in danger of the wrath of God coming upon you because of all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
And your only hope is to acknowledge that, acknowledge that that's what justly should come to you and cry out to God for mercy and run to what he has merciful provided in Christ. And then he turned his sights on the Jews, on those of his own lineage. And he began to hammer the same thing at them again and again. And they kept coming back with their own spin on it. God gave us the law. Paul knocked that down and said, you have the law, but you don't live it. Then he said, but, but we are circumcised. We have the sign of the covenant, of the promise. And then Paul says, but true circumcision is not outward, but inward. Circumcision of the heart. They still aren't willing to give up. And what we have now in this text is more arguments. And what we find here in this, it's a difficult passage. In fact, many would acknowledge one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to totally get your head completely around it, partly because we don't get all of the dialogue that's there. We just get part of it. But it appears that what they're doing now is they're, they're throwing more arguments, and maybe not literally throwing them, but have thrown them at Paul through the years. And what it appears that Paul is doing now is being a good teacher, a really good teacher. There's a couple of ways he's a good teacher in this text. Um, it's interesting, look down, this is just one example of, of Paul and the, the master teacher he was. In verse 3, it says, what if some were unfaithful? What if some were unfaithful? That's Paul speaking to the Jews now. He's, he's got a Jewish audience, he's speaking to the Jews. What if some were unfaithful? The truth of the matter is the majority were unfaithful. In fact, the majority, as we use that picture of the olive tree and, and salvation flowing from the roots of that, the promises of Abraham to a people that he's going to save, the, the picture of that olive tree is most of the branches that were of Jewish lineage are lopped off. It's not some of them, it's most of them. The minority are left on at this stage. Now, I believe, and I don't want to I don't want to lose you here, but I, I think one of the signs of the end, one of the things I think Scripture will teach us, we'll come to that, we'll talk about it in, later in Romans, is that, that a, a vast majority in the end will come back to that. And, and there'll be a great influx of, of Jews who embrace the Messiah. But right now, it is not the majority. It is the minority, and that Paul is careful. He's careful not to offend his audience Unintentionally, he doesn't, he doesn't care if the message offends. He just doesn't want to be the offense. And so he's careful. There's some. See the teacher that he was. But, but beyond that, a teacher is one who anticipates the questions. And that's what seems to be happening here. Paul is anticipating the questions that they're thinking in their minds. And he's just taking them one at a time. He's anticipating the objections, and partly he can do that because through the years he taught in the synagogues and he had these questions come to him. You know they came to him at other times. And so Paul is answering questions that are arising. A good teacher knows his audience well enough to know that people are asking questions, and you ask questions that may not actually get asked but are being thought. The other part of that, Paul was a Jew. And so in one sense, you could look at it this way. It is, it is Paul the Pharisee, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. I mean, he was no, 
He was no dummy. Paul was very learned in in the traditions that he was talking about here. He was at the top of those when Christ called him on the Damascus Road. So in one sense, it's Paul the Pharisee debating Paul the Christian. Paul had those questions and and came to find answers to those questions that they're asking. And so what he's doing is he's dialoguing back and forth. Question, Paul gives an answer. And, And really there are kind of three that kind of pop up in this whole thing. And the one answers them who said this, said this in other places in Scripture. He said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Paul the Christian now is answering those questions that he anticipates their thinking and he's heard through the years. And all of those questions are really kind of final arguments. The final, the final frontier that has to be conquered before a man's heart, before these Jewish hearts are willing to be vulnerable. Before these Jewish people are willing to not try to put their own spin on it. That's what they're continuing to do here. Continuing to put their own spin on it. And what that spin turns to, and I think what it turns to in all men who are fighting against acknowledging their need. What that final spin is, it turns to accusation. It turns the tables, if you will. It blame shifts. And it tries to put the blame on God. Ultimately on God. And that's exactly what they're doing here. There's three things I think that they do here. We won't tell all, talk about all of the detail of the text, but, but primarily the first one that, he, that they throw out is this idea. If what you're saying, Paul, is true, God's unfaithful. God's unfaithful to his promise. That's what they're saying. If it's true, God's unfaithful to his promise. And, and Paul re, comes back to them and he says... Um, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness, nullify the faithfulness of God? That's what they're trying to say, that God's not faithful. He made a promise to us. And if what you're saying is that we need to embrace this Messiah, and if we don't embrace this Messiah, the wrath of God is going to come on us, then God's not true to his promise because God chose us as his people. That's the argument. The belief that they had that God promised to save all of Jewish lineage. And that's the problem. That's where they got it wrong. That's where they misunderstood the promise because Paul turns to them and he says that true Jews are not those according to ethnicity, but rather those who have had their hearts circumcised by Faith, And that's what we get at the end of chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
That's his response to them. You, you've, you've got it wrong. It's not that God is unfaithful to his promise, but rather you have the promise wrong. God can't be unfaithful. God can't be unfaithful. He then turns to, an, to a further argument out of the Old Testament. If you look there, it says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That comes directly out of Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If, if not, let me, let me read more of Psalm 51 to you this morning. He turns to David as an illustration that God can't be unfaithful to his promise. And in essence saying, you got the promise wrong. You misunderstood the promise because God can't go back on his word. God is faithful. Here's David. David, in whose line the Messiah is to come, the line of David. Jesus comes from that line, the Messiah. This is, this is David speaking. This is after David was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He couldn't put his own spin on it. Nathan confronted him. It wasn't David realizing his sin and acknowledging it and putting his spin on it, but it was him caught cold turkey by Nathan, the prophet, by God. And David saw his sin. He saw his sin, his horrendous sin. First, first adultery and then later murder to cover it up. And this is his response. But God, I appeal to my Jewish lineage. You're reading, that's not what it says. David doesn't appeal to his Jewish lineage. In fact, this is what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this is the words that are lifted now into the New Testament in Romans, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, what David is saying And what David is appealing to is not his Jewish lineage and a promise God made about his Jewish lineage. But he is appealing to the mercy of God. And he is saying, in essence, God, you're you're correct. You are justified in the fact that you could bring judgment upon me. You are justified in in fact the wrath of God could be poured out upon me, rightly poured on, out upon me. And, and you have every right to do that. You are ju- would be justified in doing that. He doesn't say, you can't do that because of my lineage, because you made a promise. But rather, he appeals to the mercy of God. And, and that's a picture of one who embraces all that God reveals to him. That's a picture of one who is, is either not lopped off the tree, the Jews, a few, who embraced the promise by faith and by that realized that they needed to acknowledge their sin and need of God to be their salvation. 
or as ethnic um, or as Gentiles were, were grafted in. How are we grafted in? By faith, by looking to God, by realizing that our only hope is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And that's exactly what David appeals to. He goes on later in this particular um, psalm. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David looked to God in faith. He didn't understand the provision that God was going to make so that, in fact, God could be merciful and just at the same time. That would come later in Christ. But he trusted God to be merciful to him. Not because he deserved it, not because it was his right that God would be merciful. Because of some promise God had to uphold. He appealed to the mercy of God in faith. His heart was circumcised by faith. He knew God would be right and faithful, even if he brought judgment upon him. But God planted in his heart faith to trust God, to trust God that there would be a way that God could be merciful to him. The application of this. Let me make application. How does this apply to us? How does talking about all these Jewish people of Jewish lineage apply to me? I think it applies directly to us because I think there is always a temptation to somehow want to blame God that that can rise up within us that God, you're not faithful. You're not faithful. Satan wants us to, to, to somehow accuse God. And one of the things that I think is incredibly important, I say, it, I say it to young people, I say it to all of us. The scripture says very clearly, and back in Romans 2, go back to the text with me. It says very clearly to us, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, we need to start there. In our, in our walk with God, in our seeing who God is. We need to, to never waver from that. If, if somehow confusion rises up in it, this, this confusion that rose up in the Jewish people about getting the promises of God wrong, what we need to first start with is not question God, but to question ourselves. Question ourselves. And, and had they done that, they would begin to understand that they misunderstood, they misheard the promises. Later, we're going to get into Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And there, Paul will give a further understanding of this idea of who he made the promise to and exactly who the promise entailed that he made to Abraham. He says things like this in chapter 9. Let me read it to you just quickly. We aren't going to spend any time here. We'll come back to this. But it says, Paul is writing. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bear witness me. Uh, my, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, he, he's saying, if, if somehow I could be cut off so that my Jewish people of Jewish lineage could, could not be cut off, I wish it were so. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. That's the end of the answer. Remember back when he says what benefit it is to be of Jewish lineage then? If it doesn't save us all, if we're not all part of that salvation? And he comes back and said, you have the oracles of God, number one. Well, this is number two, three, four, five, and six, and on. That's what he's doing here. I told you he took a gap between giving the answers. But then this is the statement I want you to get in verse 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, it's not as though God is unfaithful. Say another way to say it, because of this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We'll take more time to unpack that. But it's not all who are descended from Israel who belong to Israel. Who is it that belongs to Israel? Those who've had their hearts circumcised by faith. True Jew who's one who's one inwardly. But the point is, and this is what I say to you this morning, don't let Satan, don't let Satan allow you to begin to question the faithfulness of God. That can happen. That can happen as you begin to walk with God. Something happens in your life and you had this idea that God gave a promise to you and you think, if God said that and this can happen in my life, how can I trust him? He must not be faithful to trust what I would say to you this morning is this, and I've, I've dealt with people like that. I, I've dealt with people who for years felt like God gave them a promise and then didn't fulfill the promise and they're disillusioned. And really what they're doing is treating God as unfaithful. They can't trust him. They touched that hot stove once, they're not going to touch it again and have anything to do with it. And what's the counsel to them? Let God be true and every man be a liar. God can't be unfaithful. So, so, you must have misunderstood the promise. You got the promise wrong. You thought God said that, and so you question him. What you really need to do is question yourself. Particularly in subjective things. Sometimes it's people get a get a portion of scripture and they pull it out of context and they claim this promise and it's not what the promise is and they get in trouble. Sometimes some, somebody has even worse subjective impressions. God said something to me. I just know he, he told me this. And then when it seems like God doesn't come through with what they think he told them, then they blame him rather than question themselves. Early in my ministry, I probably said more often, 
God told me this. I don't think I said it very many times, but I probably said it more than I say it now. I'm pretty careful about that. I'm pretty careful not to, not to put some conditions on that. It seems as though God. But to say he told me this, that's, that's something you want to be careful about. It's subjective. You can get it wrong. You can hear it wrong. And I say to you this morning, if you're in that boat, if you're somehow in that boat and having a hard time trusting God because of something in the past where you felt like God was unfaithful to you, I say to you, he wasn't. God can't be unfaithful. So the problem doesn't lie with him. It's got to lie with you. And that's exactly, that's exactly the response Paul gave back to the Jews. You got the promise wrong. God can't be unfaithful. And then secondly, there's more. There's, a, there's another area where you, you don't want to go there. Another place, another objection that the Jews brought back to, to, to Paul. And that was that God is unrighteous. Their argument is convoluted here, but it, it's an argument they bring. Look at it in verse 5. This is, this is what happens. This is the ludicrousy to which the human heart will go when its hand is caught in the cookie jar. Look at what it says. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And, and then Paul, if, you, if your Bible, if you have the RSV, it says, it's in parentheses, I speak in a human way. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm, I'm saying this, but it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned? In other words, the, the argument seems to be here that my unrighteousness shows God's righteousness and his glory more brightly. And therefore, how can God judge me for my unrighteousness? You see how... The human heart, there's all kinds of ways that can manifest itself in people who are are resisting acknowledging their sin. But that's what we do. That's what the human heart does. It goes to all convoluted ways. And here again, they're doing it. Their their last resort is they they say things that Paul says himself. I I hate to even repeat what you say. That's what he's saying when he says in, in parentheses there, I speak in a human. I hate to even repeat this. It's so... Ludicrous, but he does just to make the point. Again, I would say to you, as Paul says, God forbid, don't, don't ever, don't ever allow your thinking to take you to places where you think God is unrighteous. God can't be unrighteous. He can't be untrue to himself. Maybe another way to say that is to never let your thinking go to the place to say it's really what you mean when God is unrighteous, that God is not fair. God's not fair. He cheats. God is not fair. How do we say that in our lives? We can say it in lots of ways. We can say it in lots of ways. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. We can say it 
in interactions. God, you're not taking very good care of me right now. You're not being fair, God. Don't ever let yourself go there. Don't ever accuse God in that way. Let me, let me give an ex- example of that, an, an extreme example. This is, this is what happens sometimes. We, we believe, I, I believe that Scripture teaches that in Christ are the words of eternal life. He said that. In me, you will find life. Scripture says that no man comes to the Father but by me. So, what about, what about the part of the world that's never heard about Christ? They've never heard the name Jesus, ever. What happens to them? I think Scripture teaches, no man comes to the Father but by me. So, where do we go? We, we either go and try to debunk the scripture or we begin to accuse God of being unfair. That leads me to my third point. Third point, the third objection. And that is, first of all, the last vestige is, God, you're not faithful. I can't trust you. God, you're not righteous, you're not fair. Or thirdly, sin is no big deal. And I'm convinced in the years of ministry that I've had that that's the heart of the issue. Sin is no big deal. The reason that we want to say God is unfaithful, the reason that we're tempted sometimes to say God is not fair is because we really don't understand sin. We take it way too lightly. It's, as I've said often, we look at the wrong side of the coin. We, we don't really understand sin. We don't understand what sin did, what it is to a holy God. Cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. And so... Oftentimes when we want to say God is not fair, God is not fair, we somehow begin to think that we deserve grace. That somehow we deserve it. And the truth of the matter is we should, we should be overwhelmed with the mercy of God. We shouldn't be surprised by the justice of God. If we really understood our sin, we really understood what it is to have your hand in the cookie jar and God to see it and drive it home to us. What we really should surprise us is not justice, but rather mercy. And what should overwhelm us is why? Why are we here today And why are we at advantage to have the oracles of God, which in the oracles of God, in the scriptures, Jesus is revealed. And those who embrace him have life. I think what happens to us is we suddenly think we deserve that. 
And when we begin to accuse God of unrighteousness or unfaithfulness, it, it shows its face. The truth of the matter is, sin is a big deal. And had the righteousness and the wrath of God fallen on all ungodliness and all the unrighteousness of men, God would have been just. Christ is, is really a second opportunity that comes. But all of us stood guilty before God, all of us, and justly guilty before God. And the reason we struggle with that, the reason that's a hard thing to grasp, is I don't think we understand sin. And one of the things I think Paul is trying to drive home here is that the righteousness of God that has been revealed is mercy. And he's declaring the mercy of God. How do we do it? How do we live? Where does it leave us this morning? Are we guilty of thinking somehow subtly we deserve to see the truth? Or do we realize what mercy it is? It's why I think David cried out for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. You'd be just. You'd be absolutely just in your judgment. You owe me nothing, God. But I appeal to your mercy. And this morning, we are here and we understand that Jesus has the words of life because of God's mercy. And when you understand that, it keeps you from accusing God. It keeps us from saying, God, you're not faithful. God, you're not righteous. God, you're merciful. I hope we see that this morning. I hope God's helping us to understand because where the text is going to take us as we move on is why we so desperately need God to step in. There's a song that we sang this morning in our response that I think fits aptly, that God is our salvation. And I hope he is this morning. I hope you look to him and you understand he's that because of his mercy to us. Let's stand and sing together. The grace of God has reached for me And pulled me from a raging sea And I am safe on this solid ground The Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls His strength will help me scale these walls I'll see the dawn of the rising sun The Lord is my salvation 
treason we were caught with no way to spin it and Lord you opened our eyes to see that there was no further 
use in objecting. As you did for David, he knew your judgment would be right. You would not be unfaithful. You would not be unrighteous. in judgment but you planted within his heart the faith to believe that God would be merciful and we understand now Lord as you've opened our eyes that that mercy centers in the work of Christ and we declare the Lord is our salvation and declare in it all that Christ has accomplished for us. Oh God, help us, forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in God's peace.